Um, as we are, are getting really close to the end of the book of Judges, there's, there are two messages left after today. Um, as we get close to the end of the book of Judges, really the whole book has been setting up the applications here at the end that are talking about um, how, how God's people get formed by the culture instead of us having an impact on the culture. Um, and so as we, we think about that, I want to start off with a, a series of questions this morning. Um, one of them is, how in, historically has our church responded to culture? Um, because I think, as we're going to see in the Old Testament in Judges, the culture shaped God's people. I think sometimes and very often, the culture is shaping us, and it's because we haven't responded well to the culture. Um, and I think one of the ways that we have responded is in a really shallow way by giving easy answers to non-questions. The culture's asking lots of questions, and their questions are good. And sometimes we give easy answers that are shallow. Um, oh, just trust God. Just come to church. Read your Bible. God loves you. Um, we, we give easy answers to some very, very difficult questions that people are answering. And, and the world has, they've got no room for that. <laughs> they, when we give easy answers and shallow answers, um, we're not going to have an impact on the culture. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I think we've had a shrill response, a harsh response about the culture with no grace, where we're just throwing rocks at the world and just saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're doing bad things, you're doing bad things. And, and, and then we say, you're bad, and throw a rock at them, and then say, and so come here and let us love you. Nobody wants that. When we're harsh and we don't offer any grace and we don't go, you're dealing with real issues, let's talk about that. Let me hear your story. Um, let me hear where you're coming from, and, and on the basis of that, I want you to hear where I'm coming from. But sometimes we just throw rocks and just say, I don't want to hear you, and you're bad. Uh, I, I think at one level, there's been a lot of, uh, little by little, we swallow and, and we take in what the, what the culture offers, and we, and we just slowly join the crowd. We, little by little, become more and more like the world. <laughs> I'm going to get there even more next week. And then I think there's, there's a, a sense in which the church has been completely swallowed, and we're now no longer distinct from the world. There are so many places where the church has just um, become a place where we say, you know, the, the world says you can be successful. Come to church, and God will help you be successful. Um, God is just here to make you happy. And so you come here, and we'll figure out how, how God can make you happy. And we've just swallowed the culture that basically says, I'm entitled to success and happiness, and God's my ticket to get there. Um, I really feel like our response to the culture has, has not been appropriate. This leads me to a second set of questions, and that is, how should we, how should we invite people to be a part of, of, of a distinct community like a church? Um, Fellowship's mission statement says this, Fellowship invites people to enter God's story, equipping and releasing them to become reproducing disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, how should we invite people into this story? We're, we're hearing God's story. We're experiencing God's story. How do we invite people into that? Um, I'm going to give you some words that I am going to put in a particular order, and, and then I'm going to rearrange the order. I think what the church has done for so long is that we invite by saying, first of all, behave. Get your act together. We want to invite you here, but get your act together before you get here. You're welcome as long as your act is together, which is completely hypocritical because none of us have our act together completely. But we ask people to behave, and then we say, and once you get your act together, you can come here and you can understand and affirm all these things that we believe, okay? So then 
you understand and affirm. And in the process, you become looking like us. You start looking like us. Start doing the things we're doing, look like us, you know, do um, sports and home church and, and um, <laughs> homeschool. You, you start looking like us in every way. And then finally, what we say, if you pull all that off, if you can get your act together, understand and affirm what we believe, and you look like the rest of us, now you belong, feel good about being here. <laughs> how many people want to go, how many people want to do that? Here's what I think is maybe a better approach, that we, we basically say, you're welcome here. You can come and belong here, and you don't have to get your act together, because you know what? None of us have our act together. And in fact, we're just growing in grace and truth. And so you can come. We want to welcome you here. And as you're here, and we love you, you, you can grow, and, and you can understand what we believe, and not believe a code of ethics, but believe what God's story is, and his story of grace and love, so that you fall more deeply in love with him. And once you begin to believe that story, then you start to become, and you're transformed like the rest of us. We're, we're all in this process of being transformed. And then finally, that results in, yes, it's got to get here to some behaviors where we're living by the family values. Unfortunately, I think what we've done is we've put behave look, and look like us before we put, we love you and our arms are open. And, and when we engage with the culture, too often we engage with the culture with a stiff arm. And rather than saying, gosh, those are really difficult issues you're struggling with, we actually have the truthful answer over here and, and we're going to love you and welcome you enough that you will learn what those are and you'll fall in love with our gracious and loving Lord. The reason I framed this this way is because here at the end of Judges, all of the things that were old, thousands of years old, 3,500 years ago, all of that stuff is happening today. In the book of Judges, they have... Um, they have now at the end, they are looking just like the world around them. God's people look like the world. The Israelites look like the Canaanites. And we can't continue to let that happen. Um, I've got a bunch of resources out there at the Connection Center. A bunch of them were all gone last week. And so I put a little bit more, some more of them. And then there's one new one by Barry Webb out there. So all these, most of these were out there last week. They're on the, the Connection Center. They're on the website. One new one, if you're interested in those. But they were all gone last week, so I put some more out there. The book of Judges, here, here's how this thing is working, okay? Um, the, the book of Judges starts with this introduction. And there's a, a double introduction and there's a, a double conclusion. There's two parts to the introduction. Then we talked about our 12 judges, and now we're at the conclusion. In the double introduction, the first part of the introduction talks about the Israelites' failure to, um, to conquer the nations around them. It's a failure of war. They didn't conquer the nations and drive them out. That's the first part of the introduction, chapter 1, 1 through 2, 6. Um, then the second part of the introduction is because they didn't drive the nations out, the idolatry began to sink in. So it's a failure of war and then a failure of, of idolatry. Then we go through all of the 12 judges that we covered that kind of symbolically cover the entire nation. And now we're at this double conclusion that's in the reverse order of the introduction. It's going to deal with the idolatry in 17 and 18. And then there's going to be a war, but it's a civil war in 19, 20, and 21. Two parts to this conclusion that we're at now. 17 and 18 go together, 19 through 21. But an interesting thing happens. At the beginning of the book, all of the threats are external. 
All of the threats are the Moabites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Amalekites. It's all of these external political threats to them and the external threats of Baal worship around them. We go through our 12 judges, we, we get to the end of the book, and the threats are no longer um, external, the threats are now internal. It's not that they're worshiping other gods, they're still worshiping Yahweh, they're just doing it like the other people worship the other gods. They've brought the, the, the worship of the pagans, they brought it into their worship of Yahweh. And the threat is no longer going to be the other nations. The threat is civil war, genocide. They literally nearly get rid of one of the tribes. So the, the, the book is, is really showing how the corruption of the world has entered God's people. And everything old, I think, is new again. This double conclusion um, is going to start off that we saw last week in chapter 17 with a personal idolatry. Micah in his idolatry said this, um, I want to worship God my way, so I'm going to build my own personal shrine, and I'm going to get my own personal priest, I'm going to get a Levite, and, and his idolatry becomes personal. He's not worshiping Baal or Ashtaroth, he's worshiping Yahweh, but he's doing it in his house with idols and his own personal priest. It's personal idolatry. We saw that last week in chapter 17. But what we're going to see this week is that personal idolatry becomes corporate and a whole nation, a, a, not a whole nation, a whole tribe gets caught up in all of this. Next week, what we're going to start to see in chapter 19 and then 20 and 21 the next week, um, next week what we're going to see is the progression of idolatry. And it's a tough message. I want to encourage you, if you bring your children to church, next week may not be the time you want your, your children in here because it's a harsh, hard, difficult story. Uh, chapter 19, read it. Um, I know it's Father's Day, and I toyed with doing a, a, a Father's Day message from Judges. You know, great fathers in the book of Judges. It's a very short message. It's a very short message. So I'm going to go ahead and, and do chapter 19. Then we're going to do chapter 20 and 21 after that. Um, we're getting the idolatry in 17 and 18, the war in 1920 and 21. But the war is a result of, because of idolatry, the worship has gone crazy and morality is out the window. Dale Roth Davis says this, in two narratives, he will hold a mirror in front of Israel as if to say, here you are, Israel, making your own gods, chapter 17 and 18, and destroying your own people, chapters 19 to 21. Here is Israel wallowing in her own religious and moral mess. Here the problem is not the enemy within, the enemy without, but the cancer within. That's what's happened in this book. Yes, they begin with pressures from without. God delivers them from all of those pressures, but they never get their hearts right. So by the end of the book, the problem is the people of God, not the pressures from the outside. Mary Evans says it this way, without this section, it would have been possible for Israel to claim that all their problems resulted from their being oppressed and influenced by outsiders. But here it is made very apparent that corruption, both spiritual and ethical, exists within Israel itself, independent of outside pressures. Surely the writers are intending to suggest that Israel herself must take responsibility for their corruption. Everything old is new again. The corruption within the church and the church's assimilation to the values of the world. Um, the churches that are, that are basically saying, God's here to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. And, and God's just here to to help my success. And if I can align myself with God, he will help me be successful. 
Or churches that say, you know what, the world has a, has a real broad view, and God's gracious, He's okay with everything. Whatever you choose to do, whatever, what, however you want to lose, live your life, God's gracious. Um, that corruption has come into the church. Now, as I said, last week it was personal. It was a guy named Micah, and he sets up a shrine and gets a Levite and creates his own personal little religion there frames it the way he wants it. And at the end of the the section, he says, and now God will really bless me because I have some idols and my own Levite. (laughs) What we're going to see in this passage is that corruption is going to pass from Micah to the tribe of the Danites. Now, let me talk about the Danites for a little bit. When, When the Israelites settled in the land, 12 tribes, they were all in the book of Joshua given a particular allotment. Every one of the 12 tribes was given an allotment. Benjamin had two, Manasseh and Ephraim, and that's because um, Levi, Levi, the Levites, they don't have a particular allotment. They're supposed to be scattered through the whole whole, um, area because they're the priests, and so they're scattered uh, through the entire uh, nation so that they can teach the Bible. But the Danites are given a particular area. Their area was was kind of on the coast, um, but kind of rolled up into the hills. In today's passage, what you're going to see is the Danites are going to migrate from this area that God said you can have, and they're going to go way up here to the north, and they're going to find a little city, and that's where they're going to settle. Um, <laughs> this is a problem. Because God said, this is where you, what you get, and, and they don't do what they're supposed to do to drive the people out, and they say, we're going to go to some place that's easier. And so once you're doing that, again, like last week, all of the questions that come out of this passage are crazy questions. Um, they're, they're, just, they're just nutty. Um, Dale Ralph Davis again says this, In this passage, what is primarily condemned is not idolatry in the raw, but syncretism, bringing the world's values in. Syncretism in particular. Not the worship of other gods, but the worship of Yahweh in a wrong way. This includes both ritualism, just going through the motions, and subjectivism, doing as you see fit. See, the problem is not the persecution from the other nations or the false religions. They're actually worshiping Yahweh. They're just doing it like the world did it. And and they're going through the motions, ritualism. They're they're doing the stuff. They're showing up at church. They've got Bibles. They're even going to use Yahweh's name. But there's no depth to it. There's no reality to it. They talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. They don't look any different than the world. And there's subjectivism. It's just, I'm going to do it as I see fit. I'm going to do it and then just say, God will bless this. Uh, There's another interesting thing that goes on during the conclusion here of the book. Um, This phrase keeps getting repeated. Um, Again, the conclusion is 17 through 21. 17 and 18 is the the idolatry. 19 through 21 is the, the civil war breaks out because of the idolatry, which led to immorality and, and violence. We start off the section in chapter 17 with, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Then when we get to chapter 18 today, in those days, Israel had no king. 19, when we go to the next section, Israel had no king. And then the very last verses of the book say, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is what's going on. They don't have a king. There's nobody in control. Everybody is taking life and saying, I'll live my own life. There's, there's nobody in control. And because of that, everyone's doing whatever they want. 
And once everyone does whatever they want, chaos breaks out. Everything old in the book of Judges (laughs) is new again. Chaos in the world. Everybody's doing what they want. Everybody's taking whatever country they want. Everybody is breaking into whatever stores they want. Everybody is living however they want. Everyone did as they saw fit. And when that happens, (laughs) it's nothing but chaos in the world. And then you're forced to ask yourself questions like, um, well, shouldn't those Danites, I'll get to it, shouldn't those Danites give Micah his idols back? (laughs) That's the stupidest question. He shouldn't have had the idols anyways. Why are we, all the questions that keep coming up, they're just crazy. Because you know what? Once everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes and there's no Jesus ruling the land, the wheels are coming off. Last week, what we saw was that Micah made a new shrine. Uh, Micah creates this shrine by rejecting God's authority. He knows what he's supposed to do, but it leads to this chaotic situation. I I love Bob Chisholm's comment. Of course, this scene is absurd. There are many things wrong with this picture. I mean, I just laughed when I read that. This is absurd. (laughs) I can't give you the list of how many things that are wrong in this picture. Beginning with Micah's name. Micah's name, Micai, Micaiah, um, it literally in Hebrew is who is like Yahweh. That's what the name means. The Micah, ah, at the end is the Yahweh. Who is like it? It really is the question who, Yahweh. Who, who's like Yahweh? And, and it should be, there's nobody like Yahweh. But he's making idols that look like Yahweh that there's nobody like. And it's clear in the story, none of them know what he's really like because they're not obeying him. Um, they don't obey him. They're trying to manipulate him. If anything, the Micah story tells us this is not what Yahweh is like. Even his name is ironic. And then what he does after he makes this shrine, he buys a priest. Um, he's religious. He's got a shrine, but he's doing it all the wrong way. He buys a priest. Kenway says, together chapters 17 and 18 compose the first part of the epilogue, and they relate how the root of Israel's apostasy is in its religious leaders, the Levites. The consistent characters through 17, 18, 19 through 21, the consistent character is a Levite, a Levite from Bethlehem. You know what that does? It puts a lot of the problem, the source of the problem, right here at my feet. It's the religious leaders who are leading the people astray by not preaching the Word of God, by not making clear what the Word of God says, by manipulating God and saying, hey, if you'll just align yourself to a certain amount of principles, then God's going to make you happy, wealthy, and wise. Rather than saying, here's what the Word of God says— Gosh, the reason that I go into so much detail on the passages, and I don't chase the verses all around, there's a lot in these passages, is because I want you to hear what God's Word says, not my ideas about how you might align yourself with um, some newfangled plan. The religious leaders are the ones who are at the center of leading God's people away. And and again, the application here is our greatest need is not to find our own personal version of truth, but to find the truth that is in Jesus Christ and submit to his authority. Everybody's trying, Micah, the Danites, they're all trying to say, okay, this is how we're going to live. Our world, everything that was old back there, it's new again. 
Everybody's, you know, I've got my truth. I've, I've got my perspective. Um, you know, I, I got my values. I'm just going to be the best me I can be. Let me be me. You know what? Don't let me be me. I'm not all that nice. I want to be more like Christ. And I'm struggling to be transformed into that. But spiritual leaders are the people who are standing up and they're saying, okay, God wants to make you happy. Just do it your way. Go through some motions. Still do some religious things. Have a shrine. Have some, have some religious trinkets around your house. Talk about God. But figure out what makes you happy. Um, so we start off with the tribe of Dan seeking a new home. Again, the tribe of Dan is down in the south. They've been given an allotment. But they're not fully committed to God's plan. And when you're not fully committed to God's plan, you can often delude yourself into thinking your plan is best. Have you ever been there? <laughs> I got a plan. Oh, and I bet God wants this. You convince yourself God wants it. Um, the, the characters in this story, I want to just highlight. Micah seems to be representing a typical family who's lost its way. They are framing God in a very personal way. The Danites seem to be the average tribe who aren't even pursuing as a group what God wants them to do. And the Levite, he's a religious leader who's just looking for the best job he can get. That seems to be what's going on in this passage. Um, again, I'll get to the story in just a moment. The extent of the conformity. Here's what's happening. What's personal, just Micah and his family, is going to become tribal. It now becomes the whole church, the whole denomination. <laughs> the small-scale departure from the way of the Lord is now embraced by the general population. Um, and it all begins when the, when the tribe of Dan doesn't do what they're supposed to do. Remember I showed you there's a map where they're supposed to be settled down there in the, in the south on the coast. That's their allotment. Early on in the book of Judges, here's what we read. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. Um, the Amorites kept them up in the hills. You can hide in the hills. You just can't farm in the hills. To, to farm and to make a living, you have to get down into the plains. And the Amorites, they could never push the Amorites out. And that's the problem. God said to the whole nation, push the, push the, other, the, the Canaanites, push them out of here. And they never did. So the story starts this way. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle. They already had a place that God gave them. They just didn't take it because they had not yet come into their inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtal to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. This sounds very much like uh, sending out uh, the 12 spies, doesn't it? Very similar thing. <laughs> but, but God told them to do that. They're doing this all on their own. There's no mention of God's involvement in any of this. They get five guys, and they say, go, go find us a new place to live. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. So they're down south. They're on their way to find a place, and they find the house of Micah. Um, when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, so they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? They must have noticed his accent. Some version of, you ain't from around here, are you, boy? Some version of that was happening. As they're passing by, they hear his accent in the house. I don't know if a service was going on, but they hear his accent and they know, what are you doing here? 
He told them what Micah had done for him. And here's what he, he says. He has hired me and I'm his priest. <laughs> here's what Micah, he gave me a job. I'm his priest. Nothing about serving the Lord. It's not like I'm a priest of the Lord and I'm, I'm really directing people to God's word and, and to how to worship him well. No, um, he hired me. I've got a living and, and I'm this guy's priest. I'm subservient to him. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to, to learn whether our journey will be successful. This is another one of those places. Should they have been asking if God was going to bless their journey? No, they should not have been on the journey at all. It's, just, it's a, the wrong question. Um, but but they're, please ask. We've got a priest for hire. So let's ask him. The priest answered, go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Um, it's a lot more ambiguous than that. The phrase... Um, your journey has the Lord's approval. Literally in Hebrew, it reads, in front of the Lord is the way in which you're going. Um, it seems like maybe this Levite is saying, um, well, your journey's in front of the Lord. Well, yeah, that doesn't help me to know whether that's good or bad. Um, but, but I think they're, they're thinking, well, that must be, it's, it must be okay, because they're, they're going, well, if the Lord knows what we're doing, it, it must be okay. Is it a positive message? Is it not a positive message? I think the Levite's walking the line. I think he's not willing to actually say, the Lord has blessed you. But the bigger question is this, is the message even from the Lord? Because it doesn't say anything about him seeking the Lord. It just says, are we going to get success? Your visions, your mission's in front of the Lord. It doesn't talk about him seeking the Lord at all. Boy, there's, there's nothing right going on in any of these passages. Mary Evans says this, maybe the fact that in spite of the mention of his name, Yahweh ply, plays no part in the narrative is intended to emphasize the reality that although his name was known, there's clearly no idea of a relationship with him and no intention to seek out and follow his will. Just because you talk about Jesus, I'm so tired of it, of people evoking the name of God for things that are totally in violation of the will of God. Just because you say God's name does not mean that you're in his will. You can talk a big talk, but does your life reflect something like that? The story goes on. So the five men left and came to Laish. They go way up north to Laish where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. It seems like the Sidonians have settled this city. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. Here's what this means. Nice city, easy pickings. They're prosperous. The people who settled them live far away. They're not going to come to uh, help them. And they don't have any relationship with anybody around them. These guys are easy pickings. So the tribe of Jan is going to move north, but on their way up, they're going to buy a new priest. Because you know what? When you're pursuing your own interests, sometimes you assume God's involved in it. They're successful. They go and they're going to win. They're successful. Just because you're successful doesn't mean God's hand is in it. But they're pursuing their own interests, and they presume God's favor, and they twist the religious situation to affirm their own purposes. As I read through these passages, and I'm going to just start reading here in just a second, Kenneth Way sets up some themes that I want you to, to notice. Pay attention, and you're going to see that idolatry seems normal and right. 
it's just become part of how they live. God's orders are overridden by our plans. God's favor is wrongly presumed. God's word is ignored and misappropriated. Spiritual leaders follow rather than lead. God will eventually judge apostasy, and worship must be centralized. You need to get together with God's people and gather around his word on a regular basis so that, so that that guides you, rather than just being in your own little shrine at home, watching on TV, listening to your podcasts. You've got to get together with God's people so that there's some protection from all of this. Here's the story. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtal, they came back south after going up to Laish in the north. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtal, their, they, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it's very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you'll find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatsoever. Um, Let's go. Easy pickings. No one's going to defend it. It's prosperous. It's a great place. Oh, God has given it to us. You know what? He hasn't. He already gave you another land. You know, the version I hear of this, everything old is new again, is I, I want that new wife. <laughs> well, God's given me a new wife. God's given me, an, and it's, she's prosperous and she's pretty. No, God gave you a wife. Love your wife. Then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshthal. On their way, they set up camp near Kirith-Jerin in Judah. This is why the place west of Kirith-Jerin is called Mahana Dan. It's the camp of Dan. This is where they camped, kind of the first place they camped on their way to go north to go to Laish. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim, and they came to Micah's house. They're down south. It's not very far where they are, but they set out, and now they come to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. (laughs) They had a plan, by the way. They had a plan. Now you guys know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. Just think about this. The battle's not for a number of days later up in the north in Laish. But these guys, 600 of them, are, are armed for battle outside the gate. They're, they're, they're standing outside while the five guys go in. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place, greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. Wow, they're stealing. That's so bad. They're stealing. Whoa, what a stupid question. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, what are you doing? Oh my gosh, that's right. This is a violation. They're stealing his household idols and his gods and his ephod. They answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. I'm getting a bigger church. I'm going to get a raise. He took the ephod of the household gods and the idol and went along with the people. 
putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned and went away. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah, Micah probably has some kind of compound, and his, his house is probably the center of the economy of that area. Uh, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. They're chasing them down. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? Like, um, what, are you, what are you guys doing? We, we've got 600 men here. He, he replied, you took the gods I made and my priests and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, what's the matter with you? That's right. They violated him. They, they stole his false gods. <laughs> The questions you end up asking when you abandon the king and do whatever you want, the questions you end up asking are just nutty questions. The Danites answer, don't argue with us or some of the men may get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. We got some guys who will let go. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Okay. Here's the guy who we started off with who's going to create his own personal little shrine with his gods and his Levite and his priest in his employ. And where does it end up? It all gets stolen from him. It doesn't save him from anything. Bob Chisholm's comments are really good. Micah goes back home alone, socially if not physically. An empty man to an empty house, it is a pathetic exit. How many times are we going to have to see People rejecting authority, going their own way, and ending up empty before we learn the lesson. You can't make it with no king and doing which is that which is right in your own eyes. It happens all around us. It happens in the church again and again and again. As you try to find the bigger church and the more influence and the more money, and, and somebody's hiring you for this, and then you get full of your power, and you say, I'm going to use this to make God feel like he has to bless me. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with a sword and burned down their city. That's it. It was done. Nice, easy, and quick. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relations with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rahab. <laughs> they go. They've got all their shrine elements and they've got the priest and they win the battle. God's on their side, right? Because they're successful. Stop using success as the judge of whether God's on your side. Here's success. Are you doing what God wants you to do? The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan. Oh, nice. That's great. Who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershon, the son of Moses... And his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made. All the time, the house of God was in Shiloh. They set everything up. And oh my gosh, here's the punchline of the story. You know who this priest was? The priest that Micah hires, the priest that the Danites steal? You know who he was? Grandson of Moses. His name's Jonathan. (laughs) It took about three generations from Moses for the corruption to really settle in. They've, they've hired this guy. And the corruption is going gonna, is gonna to continue from this time in the land. The Exodus is about Moses' death around 1400. This is maybe 1300. Um, this false worship center 
is going to remain until 733 B.C. So from 1300 B.C. to 733 B.C., this false center of worship is going to be there. And in fact, it's such a tragedy and such a violation that this is Jonathan, the son of uh, Moses, the grandson of Moses, that the rabbis, I'm not going to explain it to you, but the rabbis in one of the versions, the Masoretic text that we have, they have changed Moses to Manasseh because they're like, this can't be a son of Moses, so we're going to change it to Manasseh because we don't really like Manasseh anyways. So one of the versions, and in fact, if you've got a King James Version, it's going to say Manasseh, not Moses. <laughs> Mary Evans says this, there are no heroes in these chapters, only different kinds of villains and possibly victims. The following chapters, next week and the week after that, the following chapters inform us that what we have seen so far is not the worst of it. It's going to get worse. (laughs) All the time, here's what's going on. They continued to use the idol Micah had made. All the time, the house of God was in Shiloh. The house of God, the, the tabernacle, it's not a temple yet. The tabernacle's in Shiloh. It's going to eventually move to Bethel. Then it's going to go to Jerusalem. And then Solomon is going to build a temple. And the presence of God will move from the tabernacle to the temple. But all the time, where the Danites are, where Micah is, um, let me show you how far away it is. It's this area right here that's in the, in the block. Um, the tribe of Dan is over there. Zorah is one of the towns they're coming from. Shiloh is where the temple of God is. That's where the tabernacle is. It's about 10, 15 miles away. They're, they're making their own personal shrines, getting their own personal priests, to tell them everything they're doing is okay. They're framing their whole world so that they are approving of whatever the world says you are entitled to. Meanwhile, the house of God is a 10-minute drive. Now, I know some of you drive a little bit more than 10 minutes, okay? So 20 minutes to get to a place where somebody's going to actually teach God's Word. And, And by the way, if I stop teaching God's word, get somebody in here who will. Worship and convenience. They're making personal shrines in their houses when the designated place of worship is just 10 miles away. <laughs> Alan Ross says this, There is no righteous priest. The people of Dan are unfaithful, and Micah is a crook and an idolater who trusts in the idols he has made, thinking he has set up his own man-made religion to assure his blessings. It will not save him. You can delude yourself into thinking this is all going to work, but it won't. It will not save you. So I end the same place I ended last week. When God's people are ignorant of his instructions and they rebel against his authority, (laughs) there's no king in the land. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. They put themselves at the center of their lives. They eventually become indistinguishable from the world around them and chaos ensues. Kenway says it this way. If people view God as their king then they must view themselves as divine servants. And servants follow the king's interests, not their own. If he really is the king, then we arrange our life to say, how do we live? How do we live for the king? And by the way, he's not just a king in authority that we elected. He's a king who laid down his life for us. He died for us. And we're called to make his interests our own interests. And we pursue his will, not get him to conform to our will. So some next steps as we land this again. (laughs) When you reject God's authority, it creates nothing but chaos and questions that are impossible to answer. And it's very easy to deceive yourself into thinking God's on your side when really he's not. 
But you can easily deceive yourself into thinking that. And so again, are you willing to live a life that's distinct from the world around you, but distinct in a winsome way? Not distinct because you're throwing rocks. Not distinct because you have shallow answers. But distinct because you have a deep relationship with the Word of God and the Son of God, and you're living for the glory of God, and that makes people curious. And they say, I'd like to know more about you. Are you willing to live a life that's distinct from the world? Not in an obnoxious way, but in a way that's Christ-like. It's sacrificial, it's loving, it's gracious, but it's full of truth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, words that were so relevant 3,500 years ago are very relevant today. Father, I pray that as we, um, as we respond to this, not just here in this room, but as we respond to this um, day by day and week by week, I pray that you would give us the courage to respond to conviction that you send our way, that you'd give us the courage to, um, to live distinctive lives, and that you'd give us the focus to dedicate our life to following you, not manipulating you to get to bless, for you to bless us. So Father, give us courage to do all that, because you don't change. You never will, and you're worthy of our lives. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.